This call is being recorded. Welcome to the Royer Cooper Cohen Braunfeld Opportunity Zone update call for March 20th, 2019. Uh, I'm Dustin Cavello of the tax department here at Royer Cooper. I'm here with my colleague Layla Vaughn, also a uh, tax lawyer here at Royer Cooper. And um, just a little bit of housekeeping before we, we dive in. Um, our email address is oz at rccblaw.com. That's oz at rccblaw.com. Feel free to send us questions during the call, and we'll try to uh, to answer them towards the end. Um, if you have any questions uh, generally about the Opportunity Zone program, uh, feel free to reach out to that email address too, or have your friends register for the call or anything else. Um, these calls are the first and third Wednesday of every month. Um, we try to talk about industry developments and that sort of thing, um, about the rules, questions that we're getting from, from investors and developers. So um, we're happy to have you all and uh, please dial back in. Um, related to that, uh, again, these calls are the first and third Wednesday of every month. Uh, it's been a little bit slow on the Opportunity Zone front. Uh, I think mainly because Treasury and the IRS um, still haven't written all the rules, right? So there's there's some investor uncertainty on a few specific issues, um, you know, on, on actually more than a few specific issues, but some of the main issues um, having to do with whether they can deduct their their losses, like a like a normal sort of pass through real estate investment, um, on basis that hasn't been uh, increased because the gain that would give rise to the basis has been deferred. Or another big issue is whether uh, if that if that basis has been triggered, or I'm sorry, the gain has been triggered, and, and there's deductions passed through or losses passed through, whether there's some kind of capture event, you know, when an opportunity zone investment is sold on the back end. There's all kinds of little nits that you know are still outstanding, um, like that that you know are really keeping investors on the sideline in the short term. Uh, Treasury's backed up because of the government shutdown, but we think there's going to be more certain rules issued, you know, very, very soon. So, so we're certainly on the lookout for that. Um, having said that, uh, there are a lot of funds that were formed in 2018, you know, despite some investor uncertainty. And, uh, you know, they're starting to come up to timing issues. They're starting to have to file tax compliance related forms. So the topics for today's call are, you know, when you're when you're launching a fund, how to manage your capital and your timing and stuff like that. And uh, when you get to the point of um, filing tax returns, you know, what you need to do to, to actually comply with the opportunity zone rules. So um, I guess there's there's two different levels for that, right? The first is the investor level. And for that, um, Layla, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the timing on, on what an investor needs to do in order to get Opportunity Zone tax benefits? Sure. An investor's deadline to roll his or her or its gain into a qualified opportunity fund is 180 days that are counted from the date of sale, uh, according to the code, or the date of recognition of gain, according to the regulations, which could be different dates um, in the context of an installment sale, for example. And um, those are proposed regs, so we'll, we'll need to wait for clarification um, to, to see exactly how it's supposed to work in an installment sale context or if it's supposed to work. Um, 
And that 180 days counts starting on the date of the disposition or the gain recognition. So uh, you want to make sure that you're not missing your deadline by not counting that first date. Yeah, and that's the, the installment sale is kind of a, a narrow point, right? Generally, it's a pretty hard and fast rule. It's 180 days um, in most okay. circumstances when you dispose of a capital asset. Um, is there any? Uh, is there and any... note also that that's a little bit less than six months. So if you're thinking loosely in six months terms, you might end up missing your date. That's true. You need, there's it's actually a that. really helpful tool on Excel where you could put in a date plus 180. It gives you the exact date. Does that count the date <laughs> of disposition though? You uh, put in 179 in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so okay, so it's generally 180 days. But what about if um, you know if that capital gain is triggered through a pass-through entity like a partnership or an S-corp or a trust? Um, you know, are there any flexibility on, on, on you know, self-help to make that 180-day period longer? Sure. So if the entity itself is going to reinvest, then there is no additional time period allowed. It's 180 days from the date that the entity triggers the gain or from the date of sale. Um, however, if the entity does not make the election, then the partners or members or owners can instead be the ones to make the election and roll that gain over, and they get 180 days from the last day of the entity's taxable year. So um, that can, in theory, buy almost an extra year of time for an investor in, in a pass-through entity. Yeah, I mean, depending on when the, the pass-through entity itself has it as a capital yeah. gain event, right? Um, it's not a hard and fast year. It's it's 180 days from, I guess, the last day of the yeah. entity's tax year. Yeah, up to almost a year. <laughs> up to almost a year, yeah. Um, so if you were to close on, you know, something like January 1, if a partnership sells an asset on January 1, then then its clock, you know, cause, and assuming it's a calendar year taxpayer, its clock wouldn't start until, uh, or its investors' clock wouldn't start until December 31, because that's when that partnership allocates out those capital gains. But if we go back to the benefits that you get from making this investment, if you want to get the 15% uh, step up in basis, you need to have made the investment um, by the end of this year. So in your example where you bought yourself extra time, your, your sale was on January 1st, and you then buy yourself into 2020, you are not getting the full benefit. So you may still get the you would still probably get the five-year benefit if you hold it until 2026. You can fit five years into that time period. So you get a 10% step up in basis in that case. But if you really wanted the 15% step up in basis, you want to be making your investment this year. Right. So if the, the three benefits of um, an opportunity zone investment, just to kind of you know recap the general general purpose of this is, uh, deferral on the rolled over capital gains until 2026. Um, forgiveness at, at, like you said, 10 or 15% of that rolled over capital gains when it is triggered in 2026. And then, you know, if you hold the opportunity zone investment itself for 10 years, um, complete exemption on when you dispose of that investment, you know, down the road. So, so your point is really, uh, you know, in order to get the 15 per, on the second benefit, in order to get 15% uh, forgiveness on the rolled over capital gain, you, you need to have invest in an opportunity zone by the end of 
of this year. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you were trying to engage in some self-help um, to extend that 180-day clock through past the entity, you got to manage that and understand that there's some trade-offs there. That's, that's a great point. Um, okay. So you're an investor. You make your investment within, within the time frame. Um, and you know you need to. How do you actually elect on your tax return to to get opportunity zone benefits? Um, it's fairly simple. There's there's no application or anything like that. Uh, there's a form that everybody who has capital gains um, or every taxpayer who has capital gains files called a form 8949. Um, and on that form, you make an election uh, by by uh, checking a box with code Z to say that I want to defer my capital gains. Um, and that's really it. Uh, that's really it. It's a simple form. Obviously, you know, you should make your, your accountant or your tax preparer aware of your intention to do this. And, and, uh, and you just make the election on the form. Again, no other application or anything like that. And, and as an investor, you know, you've basically done what you need to do. Um, it's a little more involved at, at the opportunity fund level, right? You know, you're not an investor who wants to invest in an opportunity fund. You're actually a sponsor who's, you know, launching and managing an opportunity fund. Um, do you want to talk, Layla, a little bit about, you know, some of the timing issues with respect to capital deployment and raising capital and how that works? Sure. So for this, we go back to the 90% asset test that we've talked about on a number of calls. Um, 90 percent of the of all of the assets of the qualified opportunity fund have to be qualified opportunity zone business property and um, we have two testing dates for this um, we average the two testing dates and those dates are the last day of the first the funds first six months and the last day of the tax year so if your fund if it's not your first year as a fund and you have a full year that and your calendar year basis taxpayer, then you're looking at June 30th and December 31st. Um, but for your first year, which is you know when you're typically getting a lot of cash and deploying capital, your your first um, testing date will be measured based on the start date of that short year. So just to illustrate that with an example, the QOF is formed on April 1st that would have testing dates of September 30th and December 31st. So in that example, you still get um, six months to deploy that capital without having to worry too much about the asset test um, in the very early days of the fund. But you could, um, you know, as, as the year progresses and as, as people are waiting for regulations to come out before they're willing to proceed, we could end up with funds that are formed in the second half of the year that end up with much less than six months before they hit a testing date. So, you know, a fund formed in October is going to have a December 31st testing date. That, that is much less time than the funds formed in the first half of the year are getting to, to deploy capital. Yeah, so if, if I want to form an opportunity fund and just, you know, assume uh, my, my business plan is to acquire, um, you know, real estate and improve it, but I plan on closing on, on January 1st. Um, so I raise my capital in October, like you said, and, uh, you know, I hold the capital to with, with the intention to buy the real estate on, on January 2nd. Um, is that a good opportunity fund? I guess what... What happens at that point? 
Sure. So um, if you are taking in the capital on December 31st and you have a December 31st tax year, then you haven't met the test on that date because all you have is cash at your qualified opportunity fund. Um, that said, the penalties may not be all that severe because it's only a single day of a tax year. Um, but at the fund level, that would apply. You would have missed the test entirely. Um, and so you would have, you know, a penalty on all of the cash that you just took. Yeah, I guess there's there's a little there's a little nuance there, and I, I don't know that's 100% clear either way. If if you never meet the opportunity zone test for for your first year, you know, do you pay the penalty, or were you just not an opportunity fund when you took in that capital? Um, either way is is not where you want to be, right? Because you don't want to create uncertainty on whether your investors receive opportunity zone benefits, and you. I think if you meet it the next day would probably end up not losing the opportunity fund status, right? I would hope. But we could we could structure it better. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean in either in either case, you know, whatever the negative consequence is, it's 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 avoidable by managing these these deadlines, right? So if I'm in that position, you know, what what are some practical things that I can do um so that I can make sure that I'm, you know, a good opportunity fund at, at all times. Right. So, um, you know, so far in all instances, it seems that we have come up with a better result by using a two-tiered structure rather than trying to have the Qualified Opportunity Fund acquire assets directly. Um, <clears throat> so specifically here in terms of cash and timing, we have some help for, some help under the code and the regulations for assets being acquired by a lower tier entity. So in this scenario, we're talking about a qualified opportunity fund invests in a joint venture or an entity that uh, you know, we would force in some way to be not disregarded as separate from the qualified opportunity fund. And when the qualified opportunity fund holds, an ent holds interest in an entity that meets the test for qualified opportunity zone partnership or qualified opportunity zone corporation, then all of those interests are treated as good interests for purposes of the 90% test. So we can have our fund be at 100% compliance there, which which you know gives them some some leeway. And then down at the lower tier, the test that has to be met is that substantially all of the assets in the Qualified Opportunity Zone business entity have to be Qualified Opportunity Zone business property for substantially all of the time that the QOF owns it. And so we have two substantially all that are applied there. When we're measuring substantially all of the assets, we were told in the proposed regulations that that's a 70% test. We don't yet have guidance on what substantially all of the time is. So presumably that's something less than 100% of the time. So in the example where you have, you know, one disqualify, you know, one day of your 2019 year where you, you haven't qualified, then, um, you know, we could, 
try to take the position or you know, probably successfully take the position that as long as the rest of the holding period um, we're meeting the asset test, then we're in good shape. And that's, that's probably true even if, you know, that, that initial ramp up and startup period is a little bit longer, right? If you, if you think about an opportunity zone investment that's going to be at least 10 years long, you know, a few months in the beginning is, is probably not going to undermine the fact that it had substantially all good property for, for the vast majority of the holding period. Right. Um, I guess the, the more... I feel very confident with one day. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But there, there's another uh, uh, safe harbor that, you know, opportunity funds who, who structure correctly can take advantage of with respect to working capital as well, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, cash does not count against you for the purposes of the 70% test. But we do, you know, we've talked about there's a limitation on non-qualified financial property that applies at a, a 5% threshold. And so cash in theory could trip you up under that. But there's an exception for working capital. And moreover, the proposed regulations gave a safe harbor for working capital that's held for 31 months that meet that's used to meet the substantial improvement requirements for uh, qualified opportunity fund business property. So, um, you know, we, we can kind of get around it in multiple ways down when we're in the lower tier, whether it's because of the substantially all of the time rule or it's because of the exception for working capital and, and you know, the safe harbor provides a lot of comfort in the right circumstances. Yeah, yeah, and and you know it is important to your point. Um, it's not that complicated, but there's a lot of footfall in terms of getting a two-tier structure in place rather than a one-tier structure. And I guess taking that one step further, a two-tier structure, um, you know, sounds like it could include, uh, say, an LLC, which is your opportunity fund that owns another LLC, which which is a you know a second tier. But given kind of some esoteric issues in the tax law. Uh, that in and of itself won't qualify because that lower tier LLC would be disregarded, right? So, so this lower tier, two tier structure that we talk about, you need you need something that's not going to be disregarded at the bottom, which would be usually you know a multi member partnership. So whether you know one of the sponsors comes in as an individual partner, or whether it's a general partner, uh, excuse me, a limited partnership at the bottom tier with you know, a corporate general partner that owns a 1% interest, you really need, you know, a related party. Well, it doesn't have to be a related party, but obviously that's the easiest way to do it. Another investor to make that lower tier uh, company regarded as a partnership rather than a disregarded entity. Um, so there is a little bit of structuring to make sure you do that right. Um, so, okay, so you manage your tests. Um, you... Uh, are very confident that you've you know met the test to satisfy being a, an opportunity zone. I'm sorry, an opportunity fund, and you know it's tax time at that point, right? So, um, what do you need to do in order to you know apply or advise the government that you are an opportunity fund so that your investors can get benefits? Um, <clears throat> a lot of questions we get are you know what's the application process, and fortunately the answer to that is simple. There, there is no application process. You know, there's no approval by the government on the front end. Um, it's not a limited type of, uh, of, of 
benefit. It's, you know, as many opportunity funds out there as, as there are, unlike some other tax credits where you have to apply and prove that there's an economic benefit. Um, you know, you just, if you qualify, you qualify. So, so what you do have to do, though, in, uh, is every year that the opportunity fund is treated as an opportunity fund, uh, attach a form to the back of its tax return, um, which is form, uh, which is form, yeah, excuse me, 8996. Um, and that form includes a couple of uh, provisions. One is your effective date. And, and maybe we should circle back on that in a second, um, because that's another way to kind of manage uh, capital deployment. So uh, an opportunity zone doesn't need to be, excuse me, an opportunity fund doesn't need to be treated as an opportunity fund on the day it's formed. It can, during its first year, elect to be treated as an opportunity fund really any day of, of that year. Um, and, and again, we'll circle back to that. But you have to pick an, an effective date on that on that form 8996. Um, <clears throat> the second thing the fund needs to do is self-certify that it meets the 90% test. And again, that's not audited. Well, it's not subject to approval by the government or pre-approval or pre-audit. It is obviously subject to you know the general uh, risk that it could be audited. And it also has to be, this form needs to be um, you know, certified under penalties of perjury. So obviously, you know, it's a self-certification process, but you want to make sure that, you know, as a fund, you actually do meet that 90% test. And it wouldn't be a good idea to, to take the position that you do if you clearly know that you don't. Um, and the third thing you need to do is, is calculate that penalty, right? You know, if, if for whatever reason, um, either at formation or down the road, uh, a fund's assets, you know, incidentally dip below that 90% of, of the assets comprised of good property. Um, it pays a penalty based on the number of days it was uh, below that 90% threshold. And you have need to self-calculate and voluntarily pay that penalty on this form. Again, the form needs to be, you know, um, prepared in good faith and under penalties of perjury. So uh, obviously if that happens, it's something, you know, it's something to manage. There is a reasonable cause exception to that penalty, so you don't necessarily owe it if you could show to the government that you know you you took all reasonable steps and acted in good faith to maintain your status. But um, but that's something that you're going to want to work on your tax advisors uh, to actually prove that up. Um, so again, it's a it's form uh, 8996. It's, it's a fairly simple form if you look at it. It does those three things, and that gets filed every single year that the opportunity fund is an opportunity fund on a go-forward basis. Um, and again, one of the things you need to do on that form is uh, pick an effective date for the fund. So, uh, Layla, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how that implicates capital raising and, and you know, what the options are there? Sure. So, um, you know, I think maybe it's the easiest way to approach this is to talk about a situation where you might want to choose an effective date other than the first day uh, when the fund is formed? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you know, in, in most circumstances, and, and if you're, you know, well-advised and thinking about this stuff ahead of time, you know, the easiest thing to do is to just pick the effective date on the date of formation. There's no uncertainty on capital raising and all that stuff. But, you know, there, there are some sticky wickets that, that you can self-help to get out of, which I guess is what you're going to touch on. Sure. So, so the one scenario that uh, I've seen come up is the situation where the property in the qualified opportunity zone needs to be acquired before the investors can trigger their gain. So, um, you know, you, you can avoid having the 
testing dates happen before the, the Qualified Opportunity Fund makes the election. And, um, you know, you obviously have to come up with a way to acquire the property that doesn't include, um, that doesn't include rolling over gains. So you would have to put in some funds that come from somewhere else and, you know, maybe use that as your opportunity to leverage up the um, the entity, but um, but the, you know the benefit you get there is you do not have to have the testing date. You do not have to start uh, your time period for having your six month and your end of your testing date at the, at a time when your fund is in a qualified opportunity fund. So that said, your opportunity fund holding period the five, seven, and 10 years that Dustin talked about earlier don't begin until the fund is, is a qualified, well, until the gain is rolled over, actually. So if you wait until you roll over your gain, that is the effective date for it being a QOF. That is going to be the time period when you start, uh, you know, that, that clock. So it, it buys you time, but you're you're always balancing with the, the different time requirements in, in this space. Yeah, so, so I guess one way in which that can be um, useful is, you know, suppose a developer um, needs to put down a deposit in connection with, you know, signing an agreement of sale, right, for, uh, for property that it believes is going to be good opportunity fund property down the road. Um, it's going to attract investors to, to develop that property. And they don't want to incur transfer tax in Philadelphia. Perhaps. Right, right. You don't want to be you don't want to be transferring around agreements of sale. There's also an issue as to whether a transfer of an agreement of sale is is undermining the the uh, opportunity fund uh, the, the status of the real estate as good property. So ideally, you want to acquire or you want to enter that agreement of sale inside the opportunity fund. So you need to put down a deposit. You know, the developer can um, form the opportunity fund, contribute cash into but, the opportunity fund. But it's not an opportunity. It's the entity to become an opportunity fund. Fair. Good point. So a developer can form an entity, you know, um, fund it with cash in order to lay down the deposit on the agreement of sale. Um, the developer who put in the cash will not get opportunities of benefits. But, you know, subsequently, um, in connection with the closing on the real estate, you know, it can make an effective date. Uh, it can elect opportunity fund status on the date on which it acquires the real estate and also acquire it uh, or receive its investor capital that day, okay. you know, and all those investors would get opportunity fund benefits. And the developer itself or himself or herself can also contribute additional capital if they have some triggering, you know, some gain triggering event leading up to that. So after, after the first stage where they've entered into the um, where they've, you know, put the deposit down, then they might be able to sell some other property, recognize gain, roll that in. One person can have both a non-QOF investment and a QOF investment in the same entity. Yeah, yeah. So um, there are all kinds of timing issues, which, which, you know, hopefully we've illustrated at the investor level, at the opportunity fund level. Um, in order to meet, you know, their respective deadlines and their capital requirements, but uh, but you know, you can always be kind of creative, and and there are structuring opportunities to manage these deadlines. 
And you have to be careful also with your borrowing. You know, you you can use it in your favor, but but taking out a whole lot of cash right before a testing date, you know, on your revolving line of credit would be a bad idea. So that's something to manage carefully on on, vein. on an ongoing basis, right? Yeah. Because you need to meet these tests, you know, after your first year. It's it's the sixth the last day of the sixth month every single year and the last day of the tax year every single year. Right. Um, and you can also manage which entity does the borrowing too to to help. Right. So you need you need a good tax advisor kind of working hand in hand with you over the life of the fund, which um which we're happy to help. Um I guess that's it. Uh no no questions today. Hopefully we uh we were you know very, very clear um rather than very, very boring. But um, obviously, if you have questions later, feel free to email us at oz at rccblaw.com. And uh, we appreciate you. Uh, we appreciate We'll see you in um, the first week, the first Wednesday, excuse me, of April, which is a couple weeks from now. Thanks a lot. Bye.